but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people belonging to God so that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Look around the room because that's who I'm describing. Go ahead, look around the room. Some of you are thinking, you, really, you? (laughs) Or me? So because this is true, live such good lives among the pagans. Live such good lives among the pagans that even though they accuse you of doing what is wrong, they will. They will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. What are those deeds, Peter? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to any graven image. You shall not take my name in vain and you should Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Rest. You should honor your father and your mother. You should not kill. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not lie. You should not even covet. You should not want anything that is not yours. Live such good lives among the pagans that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see you do these things, live this way, and they will glorify God on the day He visits us. What a word for a church today, you know, against the backdrop of this society. James Robertson is a 56-year-old man from Detroit who walks 21 miles to and from work every day for the last nine years. He got a job 21 years ago in a plastics factory, makes $10.56 an hour. But because Detroit went through an economic crisis worse than most larger cities, they declared bankruptcy. In fact, they started to shrink the city limits because they couldn't get the fire, the police, the bus route. They couldn't get them to cover the square mileage that the city proper was, and so they shrunk the city limits. That meant nine years ago that James's bus route dried up. He still had his job, and so he started walking to work nine years ago every morning, 21 miles there and back, and never missed a single day's work for nine consecutive years. It's a remarkable story. City of Detroit reported this in the Detroit Free Press, and When a young man, 19 years old, named Evan Leedy got word of this, he started a crowdfunding page online and people began contributing money to help this guy out. A local car dealer uh, gave up a free bright red Ford Taurus. (laughs) I would say he couldn't have sold it, but maybe. (laughs) It's a new set of wheels anyway, and... He gave it so James could ride to and from work and people began to contribute on the crowdfunding page and just this last week they reported that so far they've raised $351,000 for this guy. That's when his friends found out too. His ex-girlfriend found out and started to come after him 
and rekindle the love that they used to have. His landlord said that he owed her money, though he did not. He received several phone calls, even threats from people he'd never met, said, you owe me money. <laughs> I, I was saying in the 830 service, just want the record to show that it was mostly Detroit Lions fans who donated the money. Must have been Patriot fans who came after it. <laughs> a couple weeks ago, the uh, police showed up at his house. They said they'd been working out a deal to relocate him so he wouldn't be hounded by all of these people. And so they took him out of the neighborhood that he grew up in, was raised in, actually, uh, inner city Detroit, and they moved him to Troy, Michigan, where he has a place of his own now, keeps it spick and span. He says it's the first time he's ever had one of those automatic ringers on a mop. He said, I've wanted one my whole life. I could never afford it. And his place is spotless. He's already donated one week's salary to the Salvation Army, which he deeply believes in, says if anything happens to him, he wants his estate to go to the Salvation Army. See, this guy's doing all the things right. And when they interviewed him this week, uh, what he said about moving, being relocated was, he said, even though I was born there, God knows I don't belong there. Phrase caught my mind. You know, do you hear what he's saying? This is where I was born. This is all I've ever known. But God has always known I don't belong there. And he is moving me. That's an exodus. That's an exodus. That's a modern-day exodus. It's God going to work on behalf of someone's condition to get them out and put them in a new land. This is what God does to every one of us. We were born in a predicament, and it's all we've ever known. But God knows even though we were born there, we don't belong there. And he goes to work separating us from the place where we grew up, in fact. Not a place, it's a culture, it's a way of living, a way of acting and reacting. It's not the way we were made. And God one day saw this, and then he saw what we could be, and he started acting. He started separating us from those things that attach themselves to us over time. Now, I, I, again, we'd never say that we have other gods, but we do have things like gods that attach themselves to us, and we rely on these things. We don't invite them into our lives. They just sort of seep into us. And part of our salvation is God just separating those things from us, pointing them out, and then disentangling us. And then God does this marvelous act, like a miracle, where he separates us from the life that we used to have. He does for us what we could not do for ourselves. And when he does this, he changes the gravitational pull. Now, for the first time in our lives, it is easier to do what is right than it is to do what is wrong. So many people right now, some of you perhaps listening, have not even hit that tipping point yet. But I'm telling you, there is a tipping point where God can do a work in your life so miraculous, you will find it is easier to do what is right than it is to do what is wrong. And right now, it may feel to you that you're just pushing off your whole life, hoping that one day you'll outlive sin. You won't. God will actually convert you or transform you so your desires are different than what they used to be. Are you 
tracking? This is like really good news. And then God brings us down into this place that we uh, talked about last week called the wilderness. It's a dry and barren season in our life where nothing is happening. And some of you have, have talked to me this week and you've said, that's where I am. In fact, I've been there for years. In fact, I thought I moved on and now I'm back. In fact, I'm doing about three or four of these things at one time. I hope what you're learning is that when these things happen to you, this isn't random, people. This isn't things just happening to you. I hope what you're seeing in this Exodus journey is that this is part of God's design. This is the way everybody gets saved. So you shouldn't be hard on yourself or beat yourself up or think you're doing something wrong. Just say, well, I'm right there now at this time in my life. If you're in that season, God is rewiring the way that you think and live. He's giving you a whole new economy, stuff that you used to value. You're, you're learning right now, aren't you, that that's not as valuable as you thought. And the way that you get things done, the way that you survive and get along in this life, some of you are learning right now, you had that all wrong. Your mama and daddy taught you everything you know, but they were wrong about what it takes to get on in this life. You're learning in the wilderness that God can be trusted. It's a time of deliverance for us. There is uh, something else that's happening to us in the wilderness, and we don't talk much about it. It's a call. The wilderness is a place where God finds people and he calls them into something that is extraordinary. Something that you could never do without him. But something that will put you in between him and the rest of the world. Now, not everyone. Because so many people get stuck out here. They fight God, whatever he's doing. They get mad at God and God's always got to explain himself. They do this their whole life. And you want to say, man, dude, when are you going to learn? He's smarter than you. Someone once described God's will as exactly what you would do if you knew everything he knew. So once that dawns on you, you start cooperating with God, he starts separating you for the purpose of using you in the world. This is where the Ten Commandments come in. I want to put a couple of verses up on the screen for you, for you can see them. One of them's from Exodus chapter 20, and the other's from Matthew. The first one says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you out of the land of slavery. That is who I am. And the other one says, And you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That's who you are. Those two verses are 1,300 years apart, you guys. They're a whole testament away from each other. But they have a lot in common. One of them tells us who he is. The other one tells us who you are. 
The first one was spoken by God, who is Yahweh, to the Israelites as they came through the sea on the other side as he started to form a new community. He says, the sea's been split. I walked you through it. I closed the sea, wiped out your past. Now we're going to form a new kind of community. And this is the kind of community it will be. And then he goes into the Ten Commandments. So in Exodus 20, the verse that comes after the verse on the screen is, you shall have no other gods before me. You hear it? He comes right out of it and says, this is who I am and what I've done for you. Now this is who you should be. You tracking? The other one was spoken by God who is Jesus. And it was spoken not just to Israelites, it was spoken to a small band of disciples in a thing called the Sermon on the Mount alongside of the sea, and he was doing exactly the same thing. Early on in the book of Matthew, before he lets this community loose on the world, he pulls them aside and says, now this is the kind of people you will be. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. And blessed are those who make peace. For they will be called the children of God. And blessed are you when people revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you for my sake. For they did this of the prophets and they'll do it of you. But you will be the children of God. You see what he's doing? Then he says, when these things are true in you, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. I first caught this when I was reading in Deuteronomy. I learned the most peculiar thing. In Deuteronomy, the writer says that on the day Moses gave the Ten Commandments, this is the way he put it. Moses said to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10, I gave you two tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. Listen to the language now. Proclaimed by God himself in the day of the assembly. And in the Septuagint, this will be beyond a couple of you guys. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is what he says in that verse. Pay attention. It was inscribed by the finger of God, and it was proclaimed by God himself in the day of the church. He uses the word ecclesia. On the day God gave you the Ten Commandments, He gave them not to two million people who were wandering around in the wilderness. He gave it to a smaller circle of people. It was the first premonition of a church. Stephen catches this in Acts chapter 7, verse 38. And when he's preaching, moments before they stone him to death, 
He says in Acts chapter 7, Moses was inside the church that was in the wilderness. That's incredible language. Because it suggests that what God is doing in the wilderness while people are wandering around trying to find their way, God has another intention, you guys. He has a bigger thing in mind. He's actually pulling together out of those two million nomads, he's pulling together a small cluster of people who will live fundamentally different lives. And when he finds them, they will live the lives of the Ten Commandments. And that will be the first sign of a church in the wilderness. It's a call. Let me go back to Exodus chapter 19 for a moment and show you how they get there. Because this is a day when the Ten Commandments are so controversial. Somebody takes them out of the public school, they take them out of the courtroom or something, and everybody just goes ballistic. And their idea is that, see, there you go. Now America is formally a secular nation. <laughs> Holy cow, man. It's been that way for years. And there are others who say, no, no, the Ten Commandments are not just a moral code for a civil society. The Ten Commandments are there to frustrate us. They're there to shame us. So you throw yourself on the mercy of God. Of course you can't keep these things. You never could. They're impossible. You need God to do these things, which is true, but it's kind of depressing. And it also makes you wonder, did God really give us ten things He knew we couldn't do in order to frustrate us? What kind of a God is that? There's another reason. Here it comes in Exodus chapter 19. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did for you. How I carried you, how I brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my commandments, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. The Ten Commandments are there as a sign that we are God's treasured possession. Which is funny because most of us don't feel that way when we look at them. Think, wow, why me? He says to us in the desert, the reason I did this to you is because I love you. It's not because I'm mad at you. It's not because I'm trying to curse you or you did something wrong. It's because I love you. Yes, I'm disciplining you right now, but every good father does this. And out here, I am giving you a new way to live. And that's what the Ten Commandments are. You guys, the Ten Commandments are something of a moral boundary between the life God is giving us and the life that we had. Let me say it differently. We came from a land of slavery where we were slaves to our impulses. And He is now giving us a land of freedom. And he's saying, let me describe for you what a free culture looks like. Freedom is not doing anything you want. That's only in America. Freedom is the capacity to do what is good for you because you want to do it. Naturally. Freedom's waking up in the morning, falling out of bed, doing the first thing that comes to your mind, and it's right. 
It's having a mind that sits in idle moments and wanders into, wait for it, good places. You see, the problem is we've become cynical about this. And to the degree that we are cynical about this, the Ten Commandments seem like this impossible code of rules. But what God is actually doing to us is separating us from the rotten life we used to have. He's saying in Egypt they had many gods, so you will have one, and you will have none before me. And in Egypt they deified humans, so you will not bow down to things that humans can make. In Egypt, you worked like a dog seven days a week, 18 hours a day. You were tired. You hated your job. Not where I'm taking you. You will rest. You will have a balanced, quiet, and peaceful life. Do you hear what he's saying? I never heard of this stuff before. In Egypt, it was full of violence. You won't kill. In Egypt, it was full of deceit. You were so hungry, you found ways to manipulate food from other people just like you. So where I'm taking you, you don't steal and you don't covet. You hear it? It's a boundary line. So every time you hear someone talk about how hard it is to keep the Ten Commandments, what they are actually doing, you guys, is confessing that some of Egypt is still in them because you never met someone who kept the Ten Commandments from the inside, didn't love their life. Anyone doing this stuff from the inside loves it and would never go back. It's the people that are halfway, can't decide whether they want to go back to where they came from or do something else that always struggle with laws like this. You tracking? When God gives us the Ten Commandments, He's telling us something about Himself. You shall have no other gods before me because, of course, there are no other gods before me. (laughs) You shall not bow down to graven images because I don't dwell in temples made with human hands. You shall not kill for I am life. You shall not lie For I am the truth. And you shall keep your vows. Because I keep mine. You shall not steal and you shall not covet. Because I always provide. Do you hear it? To the degree that we struggle with the Ten Commandments. We confess even if passively that we have not yet left Egypt, and we are not yet following God. God is not just another kind of deity. Listen to me. He's an entirely different life. He's a whole new culture opened up to you. 
There is one other reason that God calls people out here. Um, And it comes in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. I just read verses 4 and 5, but verse 6 says, Although all the earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If I got this right, Exodus 4 and 5 tell us what we are to God. You are my treasured possession. Are you with me? But Exodus chapter 19 verse 6 tells us what we are for God to others. Priests. What do priests do? They get in between God and the world. And they go to work. They speak to the world for God. And then they turn around and they speak to God on behalf of the world. See, we think of priests today as preachers. Priests, that's part of what they do. They speak to the world on God's behalf. But priests are also intercessors, or they are not priests. They speak to God on the world's behalf, and they beg for another deal. They pray for a third way. And do you know what else priests do? Every day, good ones anyway, is they live out the difference between the culture of God and the culture of the world. You look at the life of a priest and say, man, it's kind of boring to me. Well, it's supposed to be. If you're used to that, it looks boring. But what they're supposed to do is model in quiet, small ways another kingdom that is well-ordered and balanced. So on the same moment, you look at them and say, that's kind of boring. There's something inside of you that says, man, I could use some of that. Peter picks this up in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is what he says. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Heard that language before? Come straight from Exodus chapter 19. You're a people belonging to God. And why are you these things? So that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. And how are we going to do that? He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. One day Jesus comes up to a little slope alongside the Sea of Galilee. And a whole bunch of people gather around him in Matthew chapter 5. And he begins to teach. And do you know what he teaches them? He teaches them the Beatitudes. You know what the Beatitudes are? They're what the Ten Commandments look like when you swallow them. It's what you look like when you act by nature. 
the Ten Commandments. So you might think of them as the Ten Commandments on steroids. Because what he does is he pulls them out of the world of action and puts them into the world of the heart. So he says, in effect, now that you have no other gods before me and you don't make graven images and you don't take my name in vain, remember to be poor in spirit. Remember your place in the order of things. Remember your place in the order of things. Now that you no longer kill people, get violence out of your mind and make peace. You see what he's saying? It's not enough to say, right to life. Swallow it and reconcile people who are at war. Forgive the grievances that you have against people that pick you off, your enemies. Now that you don't steal and you don't covet, swallow it and learn to be merciful. Be compassionate and generous toward people that don't have anything. People that would work if they could, but they can't. So you work and be merciful toward people. And do it because you love it. And now that, now that you don't commit adultery, now that you're not having sex with someone who is not your spouse, swallow that. And be pure in heart. Put away the false images. The movies that you make in your mind. The thoughts that linger after the person has left the room. Put down the imaginations that erode a healthy marriage. If you believe in the seventh commandment. Be pure in heart. You see what Jesus does? He just raises the ante about 10 levels here. And here's the really good news. He does this not in order to shame you. He doesn't do it in order to frustrate you for you to say, I could never do that. If you will only just, if you will only just acknowledge right now that that is hard for you because you still have some of that in you. If you start there, and instead of arguing with it, instead of going home and finding ways that, well, it's sort of, but not quit. Just say, you know what? We're leaving, but we are not yet out. 